Well, good morning. My name's Renee, another one of the pastors here at Twin Lakes Church. So glad to be with you today. So a couple of weeks ago, my wonderful, awesome little sister, Heidi, visited us with her husband, Jim. And my wife, Lori, said, listen, we have a ton of boxes of your mom's keepsakes. Now, our mom passed away five years ago, and she had kept, you know, over her 80-plus years of life, all sorts of boxes of all kinds of stuff, papers and photos, all completely disorganized. And Lori said, it is time for you and your sister to go through all of this stuff. And so we started to do it, and we found some real treasures. We lifted out of one of these boxes a a dust-covered old book and and wiped it off. The pages were falling out, and we realized it was a photo album dating from 1928. And we looked through this thing, and it's somebody's keepsake, somebody's photographs of all kinds of mountains of Switzerland, a page after page like this. Some of them were postcards, but most of them were actual photographs that somebody had taken with their camera. And we're like, what is this? I mean, we like mountains as much as anybody, but why was somebody so interested? Then it becomes clear as we keep turning the pages. It is a photo album we have never seen before, put together by our grandparents when they were first dating before they were even married, and it's photographs of their dates, the stuff that they enjoyed doing together, and so that was pretty cool, and we keep flipping the pages, and I have to show you one of the coolest photos we found. It was this, and at first we thought, okay, mountains, lots of pictures of mountains of here, lots of those in Switzerland, because that's, that's where our family comes from on my mother and my father's side. They're all from Switzerland. In fact, my sister and I are the first generation to be born here in the States, but we... we We were looking at these pictures, and then we went, wait a second, there's a person on that mountain. Do you see that person right there on the cliff? And and we thought they were photographing some mountain climber, but we couldn't see it that well. And so we put light on it, and I got my reading glasses out, magnified it. And we saw, well, that person's wearing a dress. Uh, That person is grandma. posing for, you know, flapper Instagram or whatever they had in Switzerland in the 1920s. So we keep turning pages. There's Grandma again in an even more dangerous spot on the same cliff. Can you see that? It's amazing. I was looking at this thinking, Grandma, get off of that cliff because if you die, I'll never be born. So there's Grandma climbing more mountains, and there's Grandma in a kayak, and there's Grandma sharing a smoke with some woman, and (laughs) there's Grandma in a hot air balloon. Toward the end, there was one photo where Grandma was like looking through the decades at us going, thought you knew me, huh? (laughs) Yeah, I thought I knew Grandma. I mean, I did know Grandma when she was elderly and making quilts not climbing cliffs. But as I looked at this album and really took a close look at the pictures, a new person emerged. Uh, Not a contradiction to what I'd known before, but a more surprising person, an even more interesting person, and kind of a more dangerous person. Well, listen, I believe you are going to experience exactly what my sister Heidi and I experienced in the next 
seven weeks. Because what I'm going to do is kind of show you an album. Pictures of someone you maybe thought you knew. But what we're going to do is we're going we're gonna to take that album, we're going to turn up the light, and we're going to get out the magnifying glass and look at those photos a little bit more closely. And what's going to emerge is somebody who not necessarily contradicts the person you knew before, but it will be a more surprising, a more interesting, and maybe even a more dangerous person. And I'm talking about Jesus. We just started this new series, Seven Days, the final week of Jesus. Each weekend, we're going to study one day leading up to the cross, the final week of Jesus' life. We're going to do this to really get spiritually, mentally, emotionally prepared for Good Friday and Easter. Today, we're looking at Sunday, the crowd. So grab your message notes or download them at tlc.org slash notes. We also, as Adrian mentioned, have sermon-based discussion groups. You can join them at tlc.org slash smallgroups. Now, let's open that album. You've seen all these photos before. They're familiar to you. Sunday, the crowd cheers for Jesus. Monday, Jesus gets angry. Tuesday, Jesus gets controversial. Wednesday, Jesus raises even more eyebrows. This time it involves a woman. Thursday, Jesus redefines an ancient religion. Friday morning, he's on trial. Friday afternoon, he's dead. And the disciples are left going, what what just happened? How do we go from crowds acclaiming him five days ago to this. And you know what? Maybe on Good Friday and Easter every year, it's kind of a head-scratcher to you, too. What really happened then? So let's rewind back to day one of that week. And if you stick with us during this series, you're going to understand Good Friday and Easter with nuance and depth that you have never understood before. But only if, and if you're looking at something else, look up at me for a second and listen to me. Only if. You are willing to really open your eyes and willing to maybe set aside some of your preconceived ideas and really see Jesus. And I will warn you, there were reasons some people hated him. Right? The the picture we often get of Jesus in church is like, why would anybody hate him? Well, there were reasons. You're going to discover them this week. Are you prepared for your ideas to be challenged. Jesus was all about challenging ideas, as you will see. Are you really ready for that? Well, then let's dig in. Today we're in Mark chapter 11, starting in verse 1. I'm going to tell this story, and like we did with that photo album of Grandma, I'm going to shine a light on the details, magnify some stuff, and you'll see a surprising person, I think, and then we're just going to make some very quick points that are in your fill-ins there at the end of this message. So let's dig into the story. As Jesus and his disciples approached Jerusalem. And let me just kind of help you picture this a little bit. Jerusalem at the time is a world-class city. It is the center of Jewish political and social life. And this is happening at Passover week when crowds of pilgrims travel from all around the world into the city, remembering the liberation of Israel from slavery in Egypt. But now, of course, they are oppressed again by the Romans this time. And so you can imagine how Passover with its theme of liberation from slavery and tyranny played 
when the Romans were occupying Jerusalem. This is why Jerusalem often became volatile at Passover. In fact, it had a track record of insurrections on Passover week. Let me just give you one example. Back on Passover in 4 B.C., and by the way, that's right around the the year that Jesus was born. I've always thought it was mind-blowing that Jesus Christ was born B.C., but that's the way it works out chronologically. But Passover in 4 B.C., some Jewish pilgrims revolt, and they stone to death an entire company of Roman soldiers. In response, Herod's soldiers kill 3,000 Jewish people, and he cancels Passover that year. And this is why there was always an extra presence of Roman soldiers in town during Passover, because things were always tense there. And now here comes Jesus. And what has Jesus been preaching for the last three years? His message was, the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It's like his favorite word has been kingdom. Kingdom, 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 kingdom. The coming kingdom. And here he comes, riding into town during this historically, politically volatile week. Oh boy, what's gonna happen next? Well, as Jesus and his disciples approached Jerusalem, they came to the towns of Bethphage and Bethany on the Mount of Olives. Now, these were small villages that were on the other side of the Mount of Olives from the city of Jerusalem, and they were rural farming villages. The the clue is in the name. Bethphage means house of green figs, and Bethany means house of dates. And so these were rural farming villages, and Jesus chooses to stay here, not in town, over the ridge, kind of out of sight every night, I think, to protect himself until the crucial moment. And it's from here that he's going to ride into town. On what? Well, here we go. It says that Jesus sent two of them on ahead. Go into that village over there, he told them. As soon as you enter it, you're going to see a young donkey tied there that nobody has ever ridden. Now, let's talk about this because it says young donkey, right? So that's another loaded thing in that culture. These days in our culture, we think of donkey, and that's almost like a comedy animal, right? Some animals, for some reason in our culture, are noble lions and eagles, but in our culture, some animals are just kind of typecast into comedy, sloths and ostriches, and let's face it, donkeys are on the comedy list. But in those days, donkeys were a sweet ride. The Bible mentions Solomon riding a donkey at his coronation. At other times in the Bible, four times, it mentions kings or leaders riding donkeys. And Zechariah chapter 9, part of the Bible written a few centuries before Christ, prophesies, when the Messiah enters Jerusalem, finally, guess what his ride is going to be? Behold, your, what? King is coming to you. Righteous and bringing salvation, humble and mounted on a what? On a donkey, specifically what kind of a donkey? On a colt, the foal of a donkey. That is prophesied, that is what the Messiah enters Jerusalem on, and that is what Jesus asks for. He says, untie it and bring it here. If anybody asks, what are you doing? Just say, the Lord needs it and will return it soon. And so the two disciples left and found the colt standing in the street tied outside the front door. And as they were untying it, some bystanders demanded, what are you doing untying that colt? Well, they said what Jesus had told them to say, and they were permitted to take it. And then they brought the coat to Jesus and threw their garments over it, and he sat on it. You know what's funny to me is that 
kind of lengthy paragraph of detail is in three of the four Gospels. Why include all that detail about that event? They love that part of the story. Why? Because this would be like me telling you, you know, go down to Carmel Village, and the first brand new Tesla you see, there's going to be a key hidden under the mat. And I want you to take that Tesla and bring it to me. And if security stops you and asks you, what are you doing? Just say, well, Renee told me to. You will not be arrested for Grand Theft Auto. Go ahead. And you can imagine how you're nervous you'd be. And then when it all works out, you got to tell other people, let me just tell you a crazy part of this story, right? And to me, it's just kind of got, again, the ring of, of, of truth and history to it. So they brought the colt to Jesus. They throw their garments on it because it doesn't have a saddle. He sat on it and many in the crowd. Now, let me help you picture the crowd because in the Jesus movies, it's never big enough. We know from Josephus, Josephus was a first century Jewish writer, a historian who wrote the histories of the Jews and the wars of the Jews in the first century. So his writings are precious because he's not a Christian, he's a Jewish guy, and he lived in the first century, 20 centuries ago, when all this was going on, right? He writes a little bit about Jesus, he writes about John the Baptist and all of this stuff going on with the Romans and so on. I'm going to quote him a little bit later on, but he says that at one Passover in the mid-first century, the priests up on the 10th temple did a count of how many lambs were sacrificed. And based on that count, because the pilgrims would come, sacrifice lambs there for their religious festival, he extrapolates, calculates a number of pilgrims that came to Jerusalem then during Passover week. You know the number he comes up with? Two million it is the biggest religious pilgrimage in the world at the time. And if, in case you think that's, that's crazy, we, there are religious pilgrimages in our world right now that are that large. For example, the Hajj in Mecca. Millions of people go there every year on their religious pilgrimage. So what I'm saying is it was a crowd something like that that spread their garments on the road ahead of him. It's not just, you know, the 12 people you see in the Jesus movie. Massive crowd. Now, they spread their garments on the road. That kind of seems weird, too. But on that day, for those people, the meaning of this would have been unmistakable because they knew that this was the customary way to coronate a king. In fact, in the Bible earlier, that's exactly what the Israelites did, for example, when Yehu was crowned king of Israel back in 2 Kings chapter 9. And then it says, and others spread leafy branches that they had cut on the fields. Now, John adds the detail that they were palm branches and that they were waving some of them. Now, why did they do that? Honestly, when I was a kid, I used to think these were like the ancient equivalent of those giant foam hands you see at football games. They were just like, yay, Jesus, you're number one. But that's not at all what it meant. This is so fascinating to me. What happened then in those days is the palm branch was a politically loaded symbol. And it was very specifically reminding people, everybody in that crowd, of a very specific historical event that happened almost exactly 200 years earlier. Here's what happened. A Greek Syrian king, he was uh, in the line of succession of Alexander the Great. 
So he's a Greek guy, a pagan, a Gentile. So he takes over Jerusalem and attacks the temple. He knows that pigs are unclean to the Jews, and so what he does is he slaughters pigs and scatters pig blood everywhere in the temple. And then he orders all the Jews to offer sacrifices to his pagan gods. But he met resistance. One Jewish family started a rebellion led by a man named Judas, who was such a fierce warrior that they gave Judas the nickname Maccabeus, which means the hammer. Judas the hammer rides into Jerusalem along the very same road Jesus was on two centuries later. And we know from the books of the Maccabees, which were written back then, that when he rides into Jerusalem, he is welcomed by a crowd of people waving, guess what? Palm branches. And from then on, palms became the national symbol, are you following me, of an independent Israel. Like when the Jewish people minted their own coins, they used palms as their national symbol. Even in Jesus' time, when Jewish rebels minted coins, they put palms on them. When the Romans conquered Jerusalem, they made coins of a Roman soldier whipping a Jewish woman with her Jewish headscarf on under a palm tree specifically to mock Jewish aspirations to national independence. So when the crowds are waving palm branches, they're not just praising Jesus. Do you see what's happening? They're waving the rebel flag. And remember, this is happening at the bicentennial of the Maccabean Revolt. Was anybody here alive in 1976? Can I see a show of hands? Don't be shy. Do you remember the American bicentennial? Do you remember how everybody had just had bicentennial fever? There were bicentennial breakfast cereals. It was all over the culture, right? Well, the same exact thing was happening back then. We know from the Dead Sea Scrolls, there was Messiah fever. They're all talking about the coming war against the Romans. And it's in that milieu, it's in that atmosphere that the next verse says, Jesus was in the center of the procession. He's in the the eye of the storm here. And all the people all around him, that massive crowd is shouting, Hosanna. Now, again, let's turn on the light on this picture and use the magnifying glass because these days, Hosanna, we think of it just as a praise song. That's what it means to us now, kind of like hallelujah. But on that day, to those people, it meant something else. Hosanna is the Aramaic form of a Hebrew word that simply means save us now. Wow, another clue that clearly what was happening is they thought Jesus was coming to their political rescue, right? And then this line, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. That's a quote from Psalm 118. Psalm 113 through 118, the Psalms of Ascent had grown to be sort of like national anthems of Israel. So they're waving the national flag. They're shouting, save now, save now, save now. They're singing a patriotic song. And then they make themselves super clear. Blessed is the coming, what? Kingdom. That's the guy who keeps talking about kingdom. Here it is, of our ancestor David. Hosanna in the highest level. 
What they're talking about is God's promise to King David a thousand years before that one day a descendant of David, and Jesus was a descendant of David, would reign over Jerusalem forever. Now, when we think of the coming kingdom of heaven, we're thinking of, you know, heaven sometime in the future. They're thinking, like, tonight. It's gonna happen. It's Passover week. It's all set up. This is a political rally. Jesus the hammer. Go kick out the Romans now. And right then, a very strange thing happens. In all this excitement, nobody notices that one person, just one person, is not cheering. He's not even smiling. In fact, he's crying. Look closer at the picture. It's Jesus. But as he came closer, here Luke adds this detail, as he came closer to Jerusalem and saw the city ahead, he began to weep. And there's only one other time in the Gospels that this word for weeping is used, and that's when Jesus is mourning the death of his best friend, Lazarus. It's the only other time. This is just tears just, just gushing, streaming down your face. Why is he weeping? Well, he tells us, Jesus cried aloud, how I wish today that you of all people would understand the way to peace. Now, what does Jesus mean by that? Particularly the phrase, you of all people. Well, remember Judas the hammer. Great victory over a horribly cruel oppressor. Sadly, the dynasty that got started that day quickly devolved into civil war, brother versus brother. Judas is killed. Then his brother is killed. Then another brother takes over. He's betrayed and killed. His betrayer is killed. Then his grandson has his own mom starved to death and two of his own sons in prison. Then one of those sons gets out and kills 6,000 people in revenge. And then the Pharisees start a religious war and kill 50,000 fellow Jewish people. Then a new civil war breaks out. And finally, the leaders of Jerusalem in desperation literally invite the Romans in to help calm things down. It's kind of like uh, inviting bears into your kitchen to clean your fridge. You know, it's like, oh boy, that was a mistake. And Jesus is saying, you of all people, you know what happened last time. Are you really asking for another Maccabean revolt? Because how'd that work out for us all? But now it is too late and peace is hidden from your eyes. Now, I used to gloss over this verse because I assumed what Jesus meant was he was coming to make peace for us on the cross, and they couldn't see it. They rejected him as Messiah, and so God punished them with the destruction of Jerusalem. But now, I don't think that's what he means. Now, to be clear, he did make peace for us on the cross. That is true. That's beautifully true. That is absolutely true. But see, the cross, that can't be what he's talking about here because the cross was inevitable, from the time of the fall of Adam and Eve, the, the cross was always God's plan of redemption. The cross, in other words, would have happened whether they understood the way to peace or not. But he's talking about something that's going to happen because they 
didn't recognize it. What does he mean? Really focus on this because I think this is an interpretive key to Holy Week. What has Jesus been teaching them for the last three years? The way to peace. Christ's way. Love one another. Bless those who curse you. Pray for those who persecute you. Give to those who ask you. Forgive those who hurt you. Serve those around you. Caesar's way is the exact opposite in every way. Domineer, curse, pray against, take, take revenge. Demand that you be served. Don't serve other people. And what happens is in the years right after Palm Sunday and Christ's crucifixion, the city of Jerusalem chooses to go this direction. And absolute catastrophe happens. And again, the ancient writer Josephus is very helpful here. He was there. And I want you to look at what he wrote. This is what Jerusalem was like in the 35 years or so right after Jesus. He wrote this. Don't miss this. The population had been torn by dissension. Every town was seething with turmoil and civil war. First of all, in the home, family unity was disrupted by partisan bitterness. And then the nearest kinsmen severed all ties and attaching themselves to men who thought as they did, lined up on opposite sides. Faction reigned everywhere. Is anybody seeing how relevant this is to our world today? They started pelting each other with stones in the streets and in front of the temple and attacking each other on social media. No, he didn't say that. And hurling spears Now watch this. While all this dissension is going on in the Jewish community, he says, in the Roman camp, all the generals treated the enemy's internal divisions as a godsend. Divine providence, they said, it upheld their cause by setting their enemies at each other's throats. And what happens is this. When the Romans attack 35 years after Jesus, the people of Jerusalem are so weakened by all their factions and dissension and divisions, the Romans destroy the city, take all the temple treasures away, and the massive stones of the temple wall are all hurled down where they still lie to this day. In fact, I took this photo myself just this last April. A street in Jerusalem with the stones the Romans hurled down still there. And you know who this is? That's my grandma. No, just kidding. That's... That is Trent Smith, one of our worship pastors. And Jesus sees all this coming. He says, your enemies will not leave a single stone in place because you didn't recognize it when God visited you. Again, the cross was unavoidable because God had always had a plan to redeem us by the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. But all that human suffering was completely avoidable. How? By following the way to peace. In his compassion, Jesus was weeping because the crowd, they had the right objectives. I mean, they got their objectives right out of the Bible. They saw the picture there, Uh, a picture of promised peace for Jerusalem, a picture of the coming Messiah. But they had the wrong methods. Let's do it with force. They had the wrong attitude. Let's hate on each other. The wrong timeline. Save now. No more waiting. And by the way, this is the end of the message, so this is where you start filling in the blanks there in your notes. They had the right objectives, wrong methods, wrong attitude, wrong timeline. In other words, they were clear on the what. They were way off on the how. 
They wanted the picture on the cake box. That looks delicious. But they were following the completely wrong recipe. Again, they were clear on the what. Way off on the how. Do you remember what Jesus said the day before this? Mark talked about it last weekend. The rulers of this world domineer their people. Not so with you. Whoever wants to be a leader among you must be your servant. Christ's way, not Caesar's way. And you know what? Think about it. It really works. I mean, Jesus never got political power, never raised an army, never conquered territory, and guess what? About a third of the world call themselves his followers today. Nobody else in the ancient world even comes close. Unless you're a history buff, you don't even know the name of the Caesar who ruled over Rome when Jesus was alive. That's the way of Christ, not the way of Caesar. It works. I love the way Tim Keller puts it. Think of how God won you over. Not by taking power, but by serving you. Not with a sword in his hands, but nails in his hands. Not by coming to judge, but to bear judgment. Jesus wasn't the hammer of Judah. He was the lamb of God. So why would we try to win any other way? You know, I really agree with a man named Jason Porterfeld. He, he wrote a book called Fight Like Jesus. Great title. He says about Jesus' tears that day, Jesus' lament also speaks a much-needed prophetic critique over today's church. Tears are still streaming down his face. He is still crying out, if only you knew the things that make for peace. The question of this story is, will we choose the way of Christ or the way of Caesar? The things that lead to peace or the things that just lead to war? And obviously, this is super relevant right now in this cultural moment, whether you're on the left or the right or up or down or in between, will you choose the way of the hammer or the way of the lamb? I was reading a review of a hot new Christian book. Major publisher, I don't even want to tell you what this book is because I don't want to drive you to it, but it's a major new release. I read these so you don't have to. No, (laughs) the author starts his book by saying, my goal is to reinvigorate Christendom in the West. That is my chief aim. Okay. Good objectives, I can get on board with that. So remember, objectives are one thing, but methods, attitudes, and timeline are something completely different. So what what about his methods and attitudes? Well, you get to that on about page 279. We must hope and pray for a Christian prince, a godlike magistrate whom the people look upon as a father, a man of greatness who will lead a people to liberty, virtue, and godliness, to greatness, a leader who would suppress the enemies of God and elevate his people and restore masculine prominence in the land and a spirit of dominion, a measured theocratic Caesarism. Uh, That's been tried. And honestly, I believe Jesus is looking at that and weeping. If only you knew the way that led to peace. Listen, I get it. I get why books like that are written. People are so discouraged. We see our country becoming less and less Christian. We see morality, biblical morality, being tossed aside. We desperately want to see God honored. And Jesus followed. I relate to all of those emotions. But we get there by the way of the lamb, not the way of the hammer. Now, 
The danger, as I wrap this up, of this kind of a message is this. You hear this and you go, that's right, I know somebody who needs to hear this. (laughs) And nobody thinks it applies to them. But of course, it always starts with me. I was thinking about this. At the root of the way of the hammer is this idea. I'm right. I just need somebody to defend me against the others. But I'm right. At the root of the way of the lamb is this idea. I repent. Save me now. Hosanna, save me now from my sin. So is your core attitude, I'm right, or I repent? It's so easy to point fingers, but I do, I, I do what the crowd did there all the time in my own life. So the takeaway for me is this. Number one, stop giving Jesus an identity that isn't his. The crowd saw Jesus as Messiah, but on their terms, as the hammer, as a human soldier. And then number two, stop giving Jesus an agenda that isn't his. The crowd said, human soldier, overthrow the Romans. And I give Jesus my agenda all the time. Number three, stop giving Jesus a timeline that is not his. The crowd said, human soldier, overthrow the Romans now, right? And there are times I do all of that. Times I say to Jesus about all kinds of stuff. Save me now, do this, my way, my time, right? Just like that crowd, I need to start believing Jesus is who he said he is. The Lord of all, the Prince of Peace, and the king of kings. And that means even when he doesn't give me what I want, how I want, when I want, I always trust that his way is best. And I follow his way, not Caesar's way. And that's really the bottom line. Will I let Jesus be himself with me? My king and my lord. Now, when we leave Jesus on this day, The sun is sinking, and the shadows are growing long, and a chill is creeping into the air. And he goes up to the Temple Mount, looks around, but Mark says it's late, and so he goes back over the hill and goes to bed. But when he comes back the next day, he's going to do something so outrageous So surprising, so dangerous, it jumps out of any box anybody ever put him in, and it gets him killed. And you'll see it next weekend. But for now, you know, when my sister and I were looking through that box of my mom's keepsakes, we found this. It is her certificate of naturalization. When she became a citizen of the United States, I remember how she studied for this. She was so proud of this. As an immigrant, I'm finally a U.S. citizen. And, you know, part of the oath of allegiance that she took was this. She pledged, I hereby declare on oath that I absolutely and entirely renounce all allegiance to any foreign prince, state, or sovereignty, and that I will bear true faith and allegiance to the United States of America, so help me God. And I looked at this stuff and I thought to myself, you know, sometimes we think of faith in Jesus and we think of it as, yeah, I believe stuff. I believe, you know, that doctrine. But really what faith in Jesus is like is allegiance to a king. 
The prayer of faith is something like this. I absolutely and entirely renounce all allegiance and fidelity to all other princes, political parties, celebrity influencers, and any other idols. And I will bear true faith and allegiance to King Jesus. So help me, God. Have you pledged allegiance to Jesus? Let's pray. Would you bow your head with me? With our heads bowed, our eyes closed, I would just invite you to do that right now in prayer. In fact, uh, I'm going to pray a prayer that I need to pray right now. And if it reflects your heart, you can pray along with me. Dear Lord Jesus, I confess that many, many times I have forced you into my mold. I have put my agenda on you and my timeline on you. And I've used the wrong methods, the methods of Caesar and the hammer instead of the methods of Christ, the lamb. And so right now, I just want to say to you, be my king, the truly revolutionary king of my heart, of my life. Be the liberator of my soul. In other words, be my Lord and Savior. And Jesus, as we go through this series, we ask for you. We want to know the real you so we can know you and love you more, the surprising you, the interesting you, the dangerous you. Open our eyes. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.